Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show where we talk about the show we do, where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. Yeah, we don't talk about this show. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm David. I'm Tyler, and I've seen six movies. Okay, since the last time we talked. Well, seven because I rewatched Best in Show. We didn't need to go invest. Best in Show is fucking great. Yeah. Um, uh, although, have you ever watched the deleted scenes on the DVD? No, I haven't. Uh, one of the great running jokes of Best in Show, okay, we're talking about Best in Show for just a second, is that Harlan Pepper, the character that mm-hmm. Christopher Guest plays, has a million different completely unrelated interests. Yeah. You know? Yes. And because he's like, he likes fishing. Mm-hmm. He likes dogs. Yeah. He likes ventriloquism. And quill, quill. But, yeah. Yeah. Uh, he likes, uh, he's learning how to do a lasso. He's not very good at it. Yeah. But we learn about more in the deleted scenes. There's another, there's another scene of him doing a puppet show in wood. And for no reason whatsoever, he's wearing Scottish formal dress, like a tuxedo <laughs> top and a kilt for no reason. It's not explained at all why he's dressed like that. The rest of the people in the hall aren't dressed like that. And then there's a, a, a thing that is so funny that I am so bummed. It's not in the movie but he's like tour- giving the tour of his house and he's, so he has like a house and there's like an old cabin next to it. Okay. And he's like, so this is the original cabin that my great great grandfather built with his own hands. And then he opens the door and this cabin is full to the brim with blown up beach balls. And he goes, <laughs> and this is my beach ball collection. <laughs> Why, if you shoot that, do you not yeah, include it? I know. Oh, man. Man. All right. Um, <laughs> anyway, we're not talking about Best in Show, though. But right. God, that's a, God, that's a funny movie. Yeah. Oh, and it has... Okay, here's... Um, our, our friend Paul F. Tompkins tweeted a couple weeks ago at this point about um, the woman in Ghostbusters, the uh, the maid of the hotel, who they accidentally turned their oh, yeah. phasers on. What the on hell are you doing? The, yeah. yeah. So he was... He, our friend Paul Tompkins was tweeting about like great one line performances in an entire mm. movie. And I came up with two. One yeah. is one that you and I are big fans of, which is from dirty work. And it's the guy <laughs> who goes, ah, oh, son of a bitch bastard. <laughs> Damn right. Yeah. Um, but I realized, um, best in show has another one. Really? It's two back to back one line, but it's cause it's two characters at the very beginning. Yeah. There's one I can think of, so which the, is, I, today I woke up. I was so glad. That's it. So the guy said, yeah. first the guy says, well, they couldn't order it up a nicer day. I'll say that for him. And she goes, <laughs> I woke up. I was so glad. <laughs> I do feel like I'll have what she's having is probably a big one. Yeah. But I feel like those, it's also kind of obvious. Yes. It yeah. is. Yeah. Um, uh, anyway, but yeah, uh, I, I remember it all son of a bitch bastard when, when Paul Tompkins tweeted that, but, uh, rewatching best in show made me remember, I woke up. I was so glad. There's an off-screen one in Kingpin. Okay, uh, where it's the audience. Uh, it's the big f- uh, showdown, uh, as you know, the song actually plays uh, between Bigger and McCracken. Uh-huh. And uh, shoot, I don't remember Mr. Munson, Roy Munson. Okay, uh, and so like the crowd is cheering, and then like the crowd quiets down. At which point, one guy goes, "Atta boy, Luther." <laughs> There's nobody named Luther on the screen, but it's just someone yelling that out, that out. And it's uh, delightful. Well, the one that someone, um, in, uh, in Paul's mentions, uh, or more than one person mentioned that I had forgotten about, but we talked about it when we did it's uh, at the beginning of Batman and Robin when Batman crashes to the ceiling and there's a guy, it's in slow motion. There's a guy who goes, Batman. Eh. 
That's right. Oh, good times. Yes. Okay. We need to think more about this. All right. Okay. Um, But anyway, so uh, you go ahead and start. Yeah. Um, So I watched um, uh, a couple of things. Uh, Well, I watched six movies, as I said. So we're going to start with a new documentary that I watched. uh, it's very it's a social issue documentary very much guaranteed to get your blood boiling um, it's called crime and punishment or I guess crime oh. crime plus punishment is okay. a, the title treatment at least um, and it's about uh, a group of um, NYPD officers referred to as the NYPD 12 who um, took a stand and sued the department actually uh for enforcing quotas on arrests and summonses which is against the law in the state of new york uh the movie doesn't say if it's against the law elsewhere um and it's only relatively recently against the law in new york Hmm. um but it's a practice that is continuing and these uh these cops the nypd 12 who no coincidence all of them are minorities Hmm. and are protesting that this um this practice of basing job you know reviews on the numbers of arrests and summonses gives cops motivation to just go into poor neighborhoods and harass people Mm. and there's like something like they found like something like nine hundred thousand arrests or summonses that were dismissed as soon because there was no evidence it's just cops getting their quotas in and it turns these neighborhoods these poor mostly minority neighborhoods into like occupied zones like you yeah. see like you there's interviews with people who are like we have to move we can't like i can't hang out outside of like i'm essentially right. under house arrest because if i'm outside i'm always potentially a victim of a cop stopping me to yeah. uh, just to to haul me in just to get his his quota um it's really infuriating uh mm. to see to see this happen and to see the way that um focusing on numbers as opposed as opposed to actual results um leads to people doing what is arguably the opposite of police work because it's not keeping the peace it's actually disturbing the peace and it's it's that idea of busy work you know like oh look busy well when it's look busy at the potential cost of somebody's freedom even if temporarily like it's yeah yeah yeah, i mean people like there's there's one um one of the stories they return to is this kid uh this mom whose son is um in in rikers island because that's another thing that is crazy about just the penal system in general that when you're awaiting trial you're supposed to be innocent until proven guilty but you're essentially serving time with all the guilty people yeah that's insane yeah that's completely insane i I don't know. I mean, I should have been more aware of this when I watched the night of the miniseries. Did you ever watch oh, that? I, no, I didn't. I didn't know that it uh, involved this. Yeah, that's a that's a big part of it. Um, uh, it um, anyway. So, like, this mom, her son, is just spends almost a year in Rikers Island, and then his case gets dismissed because there's there they they the cops took. Uh, there was someone who fired a gun off in a crowd or whatever, and mm. the cops basically were, decided this guy did it or maybe had one yeah. witness. And then a private investigator who was a former cop himself who specializes in these kind of like investigating police, which New York City doesn't have uh, a non-police um, organization that investigates police, which Chicago does have. Hmm. 
like there's internal affairs, but then there's also yeah. uh, a group of investigators who are like they they work as contractors for the the city, but yeah. they're not city employees. It's a private firm that investigates cops. I only know that because one of my uh, professors at Columbia College used to work for them. Oh wow! Um, who was it? Uh, the woman who taught the noir, noir class that I took. Did you take that class too? Uh, Francine Sanders. Yes, that's her. I took a I took a noir screenwriting class okay. that she taught. Yeah. Huh. So yeah, that's, that's what she used to do because she I know because she wrote a big long article in the Reader about it that came out while, while I was taking her class. Oh wow, I didn't know that. Okay. Um. Anyway. Um. Yeah, I kind of forgot about her. She was a great, She's great. teacher. Um, she had a problem with me, which I don't blame her for. Not at all. Which is, that, but my problem was her class was at eight o'clock in the morning, and I don't care how much. When I'm nineteen, twenty years old, I don't care how much sleep I got. If you get me up at eight o'clock or at six o'clock in the morning to get to an eight o'clock class, yeah. and then you turn off the lights to show a movie, I can't stay awake. I could now. Now I can do that. Sure. At that age, I could not do that. I could not stay awake in her class, and I felt bad. I would try really hard. Yeah, I don't remember. I think the earliest class I took uh, in school was 10 a.m., and even that, I'm like, I'm not doing this again. And yeah, so that used to be was... when we lived together, we had a great schedule because I'd be out and you'd sleep in or whatever, and yeah. then I'd come home at when I was done with classes yeah. at like two or three in the afternoon, and you would like just left and be gone go. all night. Yeah, <laughs> and, and that was, was when I watched all your movies. And it's yeah, it was uh, because it's one. Yeah, there were there were. I would have loved to take that film noir class, but I recognize like my interest in this is going to be hurt by how early it is, right. yeah. and I this is not a recipe for success. Yeah. I don't understand why there are classes at 8 a.m. <laughs> I can do it now. Like, now uh, I go to, you know, uh, at Sundance, I watch movies at 8, 8.30 in the morning. Yeah. I have no problem. Uh, but And then at graduate school, um, I believe there was one class that started at, like, 9. I went to it once. Uh-huh. And I was like this isn't going to work for me. And so, but beyond that, like the vast majority of classes started at like 1 PM. And so it's almost like they're saying here, here's a reward for <laughs> getting into the program. You don't have to wake up very early. Um, so anyway, back to the movie, yeah. crime and punishment, definitely worth checking out. I didn't know um, that's what it was about. That's it'll, interesting. Yeah. It'll, it'll, it'll get you mad. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and it'll also, I mean, to a son, um, t- to some extent, it'll make you happy that there are cops willing to stand up sure. to this. There's a great scene actually with the NYPD 12 meeting with, um, some like black lives matter activists because this, in theory, it, it, I, hypothetically, this issue should be right up their alley because mm-hmm. it's so many black and Latino people who are, who become easy targets. Um, and there's like, but there's a, there's this hurdle, uh, which comes up, which is definitely in relation to the whole, uh, the thing that Boots Riley wrote about black Klansmen. Did mm-hmm. you read that whole thing? No, I didn't. Um, basically like saying good things about the movie and Spike Lee's craftsmanship and everything. But just like, uh, Boots Riley is basically saying like, um, it's myopic or obtuse. I don't know if we use those words, but saying it's obtuse to make a movie about racism in which cops are heroes in America. Um, and that's in the NYPD 12. They're like, they're, they're like, all right, we're going to meet with these activists who are on our side. And the activists are like, you're cops. Like it, to a certain extent, it doesn't 
Like you're part of the problem, no matter what you're doing. Although there is that, there are a couple of scenes like that in Black Klansman, which is one of the movies I'll be talking about today. And so they at least address it. Yeah, uh, you should listen. You and the listeners should listen to when I uh, was on um, the Out Now podcast with our friend Aaron. Uh, Aaron, our friends Aaron and Abe and uh, Alex Billington was the other guest um, and we talked because it was like the day after the Boots Riley uh, mm-hmm. after he'd posted this critique about Black Klansman and we talked at length uh, at a lot of length uh, about yeah. this so definitely worth checking that out okay so that's Crime and Punishment worth seeing uh, next up I watched a movie that I've been meaning to get to for a couple years I've been scared to watch it i've been i've been excited because it's a it's a 1973 film that got uh, restored a couple of years ago and has been um on a lot of people's radar since then we have a review of it on the website that someone else wrote uh neither one of us wrote uh but i was also nervous because i know what it, what it's about uh it's a japanese animated movie called belladonna of sadness oh okay yeah um and it's only 80 something minutes but nearly half of that i would say is rape or rape related okay it's a like i mean i i sometimes hesitate to like as to when to employ the term trigger warning because i don't entirely understand and don't want to sound like i'm making fun of it because i'm not but like this movie deserves one because it's basically the premise is that it's a small town like feudal small village in feudal japan and uh poor guy and a poor woman uh the woman is very beautiful uh get married and they go to the the lord or whatever yeah. not sure what the, the baron i guess um to pay the ta- you have to pay a tax to the baron for getting married mm-hmm. and he demands way more than they can afford they're poor people because of how beautiful she is and then then so then the baron decides well if you can't pay the tax then uh uh me and all of my like court of sycophants are going to take turns raping uh this woman and you almost feel like they should they would say at that point like uh we don't want to get married now we're gonna go back home (laughs) um uh so that so that there's a whole long scene of her being raped and then she calls out to she prays but when she comes back home uh, a demon the devil essentially offers mm-hmm. like you you want revenge or whatever you know yeah. i can offer this to you but then like for a good portion of the movie this de- like the demon gives her all this power that she uses to exact revenge but also he or it keeps raping her too oh jeez there's so there's so much it's like i i can't in, ter- in the interest of trigger warnings i yeah. cannot overstress that this movie is full of rape in, um, in the class that i'm teaching now uh they do suggest that yes trigger warnings are uh something that should be put out there um but because the the term is so loaded now um i choose the phrase heads up yeah which is okay everybody just a heads so if it was belladonna of sadness which obviously i'm gonna we're gonna watch next week right. um <laughs> i say like just a heads up this thing's like 65% rape. So if you're not in the mood yeah. for that, yeah, that's uh, that's rough stuff. So all that having been said, I am ultimately glad I watched it because in terms of animation and just general early 70s psychedelia, this movie is so gorgeous. Mm-hmm. It's unbelievable. Some of the, some of the scenes, um, and how and how truly psychedelic they become and the way that um images become one another there's like uh and it's, of course it's always very sexual so there's like 
one part that's a close-up of what's it's not a close-up because it's abstract but it's uh, and it's animated but it's clearly like a vagina sort of undulating but then it becomes her body but then it becomes her lips but then it becomes her face hmm. and like it becomes all this different stuff and then like there's this thing where she has this long flowing hair and the camera sort of tracks down her hair and there are you see within the hair images of people in sexual congress with one another all hmm. the way through her hair and it's um, it's absolutely breathtakingly beautiful and gorgeous and has this great uh, early 70s psychedelic like acid rock type soundtrack mm-hmm. um, that I can't I looked up who the music was by it's really good I can't remember who it is now um, so yeah I'm torn on this movie I'm uh, yeah trigger warnings are definitely worthwhile in this case yeah um, and I don't want to make it seem like I, I don't know where to get into the the conversation of like is it worth it do you know what i mean like you have to make it up it's a case by case it's on your own on your own merits um i'm glad i watched it but uh, does it feel exploitative to you uh i mean it's animated so no one's being right exploited do you know what i mean there's the concept uh some people might find it vaguely titillating uh god i hope not but maybe yeah because the way that it's I, I, I will mean, say I this don't mean sexually titillating. I mean that like right, okay. just people like something like a curiosity or just a, a, a fascination with right. like, what they know to be grotesque and what they would never approve of. So it's salacious. Salacious. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's a good. Yeah, uh, that I could see happening. Yeah, I don't because to the movie's credit, the um, the rape scenes are depicted in such a way that it is it is focusing on how painful and horrifying this is mm-hmm. for her. And so it's not like it's yeah, it's not titillating to use that it's not yeah. supposed to be arousing in any way right but uh it is exploitative yes of the concept because it's just so much it's right more there. than just the fulcrum of the movie it's it's most of the platform too and actually when you mentioned um you know like like <clears throat> any uh red-blooded american male about my age uh-huh. yeah i've seen internet porn uh and <laughs> And, on, you know, on various websites, there'll just be this this giant list of, like, categories. Right. Um, some of them, it's like, I don't know what that means. I'm not going to click on it. <laughs> Better safe than sorry. Yeah. But there is, of course, the... Uh, now, hentai? Hentai, yeah. yeah. Which is like this, and, and then you hear, I've not seen it, thankfully, but you hear about, like, tentacle porn. So, like, I do wonder if the idea, like, once the demon gets involved, I, I feel like that's when it could start to head in a, in a direction that might seem exploitative. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely, uh, definitely could be seen that way, and I would say probably in the terms that you're talking about, yeah, probably is. Yeah. Uh, all right, I think you're up, right? Okay, yeah. I watched a movie that nobody cares about. Um, nobody remembers. Arguably, they shouldn't. Um, Hold on. Can I guess? No. You oh. cannot possibly guess. Unless, well, I mean, I guess you do follow me on uh, on Letterboxd, so you might have seen me rate it uh, recently. No, I'm going to say, I didn't see this, but I'm going to say that you're talking about Sweet November, starring Keanu Reeves and Charlize Theron. <laughs> you have nailed it. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm joking. Uh, no, it's it's from 1991. It's directed by Michael Apted. It's got Gene Hackman, Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio, uh, Donald Moffat, uh, someone's uh, guessed it by now. I Larry have. Fishburne at the time. Still Larry at that time. Uh, yeah, I know. That's weird, right? Like yeah. that's like a year before, a year or two before. What's love got to do with it? Like right. I think yeah. that might have been what spurred him to say Lawrence. But um, but yeah, uh, good cast all around. 
Um, and it is uh, a film called Class Action. Don't remember this one. Yeah. It's one that I would regularly see on the shelves when I worked at video stores um, on VHS. And, and I was just like scanning through HBO Go and I was like, I haven't seen Gene. I haven't watched a Gene Hackman movie in a while. You know what? I'm going to watch this because it, it sounded like an interesting premise. Here's the premise. So Gene Hackman plays uh, a lawyer who's kind of a he's an old time civil rights lawyer. And now he takes on corporations and that sort of thing. And then his daughter is also a lawyer and is like a corporate lawyer. And so they find themselves on opposite sides of this case. But here's what's interesting. So she represents, you know, the bad side, Mm -hmm. but he's an asshole. Mm -hmm. So like personally, we're really on her side. As far as the cause, we are on his side. And so to see these two thi- these things interact makes for some pretty solid drama, even if it's just even if it's like, well, that judge should lose his job. Like this shouldn't be allowed <laughs> to happen. But um, but yeah, and their, their performances are great. Uh, even if there's it, it definitely feels very Hollywood in a lot of ways, but there's a couple scenes where the two of them just have this drag out, knock down, drag out fight. And it's really great. It's both of them. It's not often that you see Gene Hackman, like play a character who is rattled, you know? And yet his character, like when his daughter's like really ripping into him about like the kind of father he was, you you just see him like angry at himself for some of the things he said and angry at her. And it's from an acting standpoint, it's really, really solid. Um, the script is, is fine. Um, and the filmmaking is, is fine. Uh, it really is just like the, the case is very run of the mill. It really is just, uh, it really is the, the acting and just the unique situation that is the selling point. But I think it probably is a selling point. I'd say it's worth watching class action. Um, you know, what's another, speaking of seeing video covers, uh, video like VHS covers at, at the video store and never watching the movie, but another legal thriller starring Lawrence Fishburne, Fishburne that I already lo- always loved the name of is 1995's just cause yeah. <laughs> I believe you've mentioned that before that yes. Yeah. Um, all right. The joke, of course, if those don't your honor objection <laughs> on what grounds and just cause yeah, the movie is called just cause, but right? Going back to even when I was a kid, I would see it in the store and be like, just because. <laughs> All right. Um, now, I think, uh, Tyler, you'll remember because you were here for it. Uh, <laughs> just last week, we did a uh, fall movie preview. Maybe I tuned uh, out. You can't and, say what um, I remember and what I don't. Uh, I said, I think you remember. Okay, All right. Fair enough. So, uh, and I think um, one thing that Scott was complaining about that I was generally on his side uh, for was documentaries about a person that are just sort of, I think I called them primer slash hagiographies. Mm-hmm. You know, we talked about how there's a lot of them coming out. There have been a lot of them in the past and there've been, um, uh, just a heads up. We need to remember some, to do that. Uh, okay. Yeah. There, uh, after this, we'll yeah. be like halfway through or whatever. Um, uh, there are a number of good ones in the past, but I, I watched one that uh, comes out in a couple weeks, I think, or maybe next week. It's called Kusama Infinity, and it's okay. about um, the uh, Japanese artist ya- uh, Yayoi, I think is her name, Yayoi Kusama. Mm-hmm. And it's a perfect uh, illustration of the thing that, that I was talking about in the following preview, in, in that like I watched the movie and it's was like, I like the art. 
I wasn't aware of this woman's art. I like mm-hmm. the art. I'm glad that I know about her now. That doesn't make it a good movie. Like it's still a very dry movie. That's the tough I thing about kind of bored a lot. That's the tough thing. Documentary, right? Yeah. That's the tough thing about documentaries. Like that sometimes the subject is interesting and that's enough to fool you <laughs> yeah. into it. Be, and maybe that's enough for a documentary in the yeah, same way that but, like, if a comedy has laughs, but the filmmaking is only fine. Yeah. Sometimes maybe it enough. succeeds. But in this know. case I would say no. I mean, I, I think there are documentaries. Well, just this year we had the Fred Rogers documentary that I thought was great. I thought mm-hmm. it, it, cause it took an angle, you know, it, yeah. it made it about something more than just Fred Rogers. It's about yeah. bigger ideas. Um, a couple of years ago there was, um, was it just called Amy, the Amy Winehouse documentary? Yes. Uh, I thought that was great um, because it used it sort of uh, the access it got to all of that footage. Did you ever see yeah. it? Uh, no, um, I didn't. I think you'd like it. Uh, it's very sad, though. It's very tragic, and yeah. I think uh, it had some power in that. This just felt like a, like, I don't know, like a TV special, I guess. Um, yeah. And not even a good one. There's good TV specials. Um, yeah. Before I move on to my next movie, um, to whom is this episode brought to us by by whom is this episode brought to there us? there it is all right uh i wasn't going to get there any faster than <laughs> you uh this episode is brought to you by miniflix the premier streaming site for award-winning short films miniflix acquires short films that have premiered at Cannes, sundance toronto toronto international film festival and many more meaning that you can see great short films available nowhere else online miniflix also offers several oscar nominated and oscar winning short films unavailable on typical free video platforms now Along with these great short films, Miniflix also has a blog featuring editorials and interviews. And with the Toronto International Film Festival a week away, Miniflix's latest blog art, uh, blog article features eight short films uh, that will be featured at the festival. These films are about and made by women or people of color, giving us unique perspectives on their material. So to check out this and other articles, just go to the page for this week's movie journal and click on the Miniflix banner at the bottom to redeem the special offer. Okay. Um, I'm very excited to talk about this next movie. Do you, and I know you've had this experience because we talked about it before, but sometimes you see a movie and you think that's very good. In fact, it's, I like that movie a lot. Yes. And then other people start seeing it and you, and you realize that a lot of people really don't like it and you realize, okay, I think I've just upgraded from I like this movie a lot to I love it because I feel like I need to champion it now. Uh, yes, okay, so you're talking about not a situation where other people chime in about what they don't like and you realize, oh, you know what, they might have, might have a point, maybe I like it less. You actually, you dig in your heels. Because I, I because do it I, too. It's but because yeah. you realize, oh, this movie needs people to champion it. Yes. People are missing what's so great about it. So, I saw the new movie from Lenny Abramson um, called The Little Stranger, mm-hmm. uh, starring Donal Gleason. as I learned just today how to pronounce his name. What is it? Uh, Donal. It's basically just a silent M. Oh. Um, uh, That's off-putting. <laughs> yeah, well, because I was tweeting about how I can never remember where the H goes. Mm-hmm. And then Scott, to mention Scott again, tweeted back at me. He's like, wait till you learn how to pronounce it. <laughs> so then I like <laughs> when I looked at a couple of videos of him giving interviews, telling people how to pronounce his name. Mm-hmm. And he says the M is just there to confuse Americans. <laughs> Mission accomplished. <laughs> yeah. At least Donald uh, Logue got it. Uh, yeah, I guess it's the same thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, OK, so I'm. Uh, I don't want to put a lot of, you know, we don't put a lot of stock into whether or not like Rotten Tomato scores are, they serve their purpose. It's good to sort of 
see what people are saying. It's great. Mm. I, I love you. I, I use Rotten Tomatoes regularly. It's just a, an aggregator to link to, links to the reviews. Yeah. The actual tomato score, um, I think, sometimes has some problems because it's a binary, right? Mm. Oftentimes, movies that are just accomplished but inoffensive end up with like a 90% score mm. because all that means is that 90% of the critics thought it was at least okay. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Whereas sometimes things that are in the sixties and seventies often end up being among my favorite movies of the year yeah. because they have these divisive reactions. Yeah. There are, there are a handful of people that think it's astonishing yeah. and yeah. Yeah. So I think like personal shopper, which is one of my favorite movies of mm-hmm. the century so far was like at uh, last night. I think when we did our, when I did our episode of it, it was like in the low seventies mm-hmm. and currently little strangers in the low sixties on Rotten Tomatoes. And, um, I really feel like I want to be the guy going to Pat for this movie. Um, because I'm excited uh, for it. Yeah. And you should be, it's beautifully made. Um, and wonderfully acting. You've got a great cast here. You've got, you've got, uh, Donald Gleason mm-hmm. in the lead. Uh, and the premise is, uh, takes place in a, uh, English village in the late 1940s. Uh, Donald Gleason plays the doctor like of the town who grew up in the town. And then there's the, the rich people who live at the center of town in this big mansion. And like, he idolized them as a kid and looked up in this like mansion represented so much that he would never achieve or whatever. And then at the beginning of the movie, he is called to the mansion because their maid is sick. And then he ends up sort of ingratiating himself with the family and like hanging out there a lot and sort of like warming his way into this upper crust thing that he, mm-hmm. um, idolizes a kid and maybe had, didn't realize that his idolization hadn't gone away with yeah. age. Uh, and so he's, he's the doctor. The family is played by, you've got Charlotte Rampling as the matriarch. You've got, uh, Will Poulter, an actor yeah. that I like, um, as the son who, um, was a pilot who was, um, grievously injured and burned, uh, in world war two. Uh, and then you've got as the daughter, you've got Ruth Wilson, mm-hmm. um, another actress I really like. Uh, have you seen Luther? Uh, I've the, never seen Luther. Yeah. No. boy, Luther. That's what uh, I say. Yeah. Uh, it's, um, a, it's, it's good. And she's great on it. Um, I will tell you when I have a second, I will tell you when I, the, cause I can't remember the name of the thing that I first saw her in. Um, that is a weird British TV thing that no one ever talks about. <laughs> uh, anyway, but, um, so really this is a movie about this, this guy sort of, uh, I would say sort of debasing himself to try and become a part of this upper crust. Hmm. Um, even though the upper crust, like this, the house has fallen largely into disrepair. Um, they have one maid, whereas when he was a kid, they had a whole yeah. staff. Um, and yet in his mind, this is still the house that it used to be. Uh, and what I haven't mentioned this entire time, because the movie is kind of slow to getting around to it, is that it's also a horror movie. Yeah. <laughs> There's, um, and that's, uh, you know, uh, here's one of my least favorite things uh, we've talked about on the podcast before. When you um, are in a movie, whether it's a press screening or just a regular movie screening, and the credits are rolling, and the person near some person near you decides to start giving their opinion of the movie yeah. while the movie's still going. I hate it take it out to the fucking corridor. Yeah. You know, this is not, this is a place for quiet reflection at this point. I understand not everyone stays through the credits. That's fine. I'm not mad at people for not staying through the credits, but if you're going to stay through the credits, 
quiet reflection. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Okay. So the guy behind me was like, well, I just wish the movie hadn't waited around an hour before deciding it wanted to be a horror movie. But that's what's so great about it is that there's like these definitely there's a sense of dread and something coming. And in fact, there yeah. are characters who say things like, I feel like something bad is coming. And then in the second half, it becomes more of a horror movie. And you kind of want to be like, Hey buddy, what did you think of psycho? Uh-huh, how, right. about a- how about alien? Yeah. yeah. what did you think of those movies? Like I'm sure he'd say th- those were, that was those established classics. Oh, those are gr- brilliant yeah. moves. Yeah. But with the new moves, like, Oh, well I wish it was, it was this other thing. And like, no, I'd, I like, I do like that kind of thing. And yeah. I just saw a trailer for it. I knew nothing about it. Uh-huh. And I was like, not to build it up in my own mind, but everything about this is my kind of thing. And I think I will love it. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's really, really, really great. Uh, it's a terrific performance from Donald Gleason, mm-hmm. uh, and Ruth Wilson. They're the, really the two leads who were in it the most. Um, and, uh, there was something else I was going to say about it and now I've forgotten, but, uh, damn, what were we just talking about? Well, you were going to say when you fell in love with Ruth Wilson. Oh, I'll get to that. Okay. Um, but, uh, Lenny Abramson in general, I feel like, um, I really liked Frank. I think most people liked Frank. I can't remember. Most people who saw it. Yeah. Yeah. It was was well regarded. Um, And then obviously room was, yeah. And I, and I feel like I'm not saying this is better than room. I still think room is probably his best movie, but I I do feel like this is a step of him becoming a more, determined and more idiosyncratic director and, mm-hmm. more, and more just self-assured. I, I feel like taking all, you know, the other thing I was going to say is that the novel that this is based on, which is called a little stranger is written by the same woman who wrote the novel that the handmaiden, uh, was based on. Um, Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that, that novel called fingersmith in this case, both movie and novel are called the little stranger. Um, but, uh, I think it's your turn while I look up this Wilson thing. Well, it's interesting that you that you brought that up, and it's interesting that my next movie is a rewatch of uh, Damien Chazelle's Whiplash. Uh, it's a, it's the film that I showed my class this week um, as we were talking about trying to tune into your feelings and what a movie makes you think about as you're watching it and afterwards. Cause it's a film that is going to make you feel things and you know, uh, unquestionably. Um, I hadn't seen whiplash in a while. Um, it's a film that I always had certainly not a love hate relationship. I still really like it. Um, and I liked it at the time, but I think I, I like it more now. Um, there were elements, story elements to the film that kept me from really embracing it. Um, but, a way that I have phrased it in the past, and I definitely believe it now, is that it's not a perfect film, but it is a great film. Um, that car crash, I think, is almost purely a function of theme mm-hmm. um, and really should not have happened. It's just a little bit overkill. Uh, but the last 15 minutes are absolutely astonishing. And I think what it's trying to explore and is something that is very important for us as Americans, and I would say for people like you and myself, anybody who has a, an art towards the cre- uh, an eye towards the creative or the arts, something that that we should keep in mind, which is like, what is the line when you are moving towards quality, and and is it a line worth crossing? And just when you think the film is taking a stance that 
hey, you know what? Greatness is very important. And sometimes it takes, sometimes you have to sacrifice other things. Just when you think it's making that point, they introduce a new piece of information. They're like, well, hang on now. Look at the consequences here. And so it's like, yeah, you're right. You know, it may be family and friends. Maybe that is what's important. Wait a second. Hang. Like, I love what it's doing thematically. And so, uh, in talking about, uh, Lenny Abramson mm-hmm. and what you just said that like he, he went from, you know, he kind of took this idiosyncratic turn, uh, front of the show, Jason Eakin and I were talking about Damien Chazelle and that while we have no doubt that first man is going to be a very good movie, I was so much more interested in what he was doing hmm. before this. Like I don't, I'm really interested in first. Man. I, I, I am sure it'll be great. And I think I'll enjoy it a lot, but just if you look at what he's doing with whiplash and that, that, you know, best picture nomination definitely put him on the map. And that what he chose at that point to make was La La Land, which nobody would have suspected. And it was such a, a fascinating film in itself. And then to go and, and just like, okay, I, it's, enough of this musical shit uh, and enough of this of this kind of strange whimsical stuff it's time to you know time to be a grown up and let's make this very straightforward film about Neil Armstrong and again I'm sure it's great I'm sure I will enjoy it but compare that like you were saying compare that with Lenny Abramson who takes this very well respected film uh, that gets him an Oscar nomination for best director and the direct, and the next thing he goes to is this weird little genre piece that is not likely to be yeah. uh, uh, smiled upon by large audiences. I feel like it's a very interesting next move for him. But anyway, so uh, but but yeah, I, I really adore Whiplash, and I remember for a long time I was bothered by the amount of praise that J.K. Simmons got because mm-hmm. while, of course, I love J.K. Simmons, um, you want to I just talk about Paul Reiser. <laughs> well, he, he, he is great. He is great. <laughs> um, but actually that year, I really wanted people to be talking about Mark Ruffalo in Foxcatcher, who is okay. marvelous. Um, and of course, and I just thought like, well, J.K. Simmons character is just yelling a lot. Well, not he is. Yes. But it's in his quiet moments that he really finds the core of the character. And you just, it really is a marvelous performance. Like I think I was thinking about it too simply or simplistically. Um, and yeah, it's, it is a genuinely great movie and one that I think that anybody, again, uh, I think that when you talk about the American dream and what success means, and I don't just mean financial success, um, the idea of what you have to sacrifice. I mean, we, they, he talks about it in La La Land, you know, um, the sacrifices you have to make are, are a big part of the consideration. And I don't know. It's just, uh, I was very, I was very glad to have watched it. And, uh, and I'm excited that I'm excited that my class of like 18 and 19 year olds, they all really liked it, but people were, some of them were very torn on the, on where they stood on the point of the movie. Like there are, there are a couple people who were very adamant about like, it's okay to cross the line. If you are, fighting for something that you know and you believe in and that you think like you know so many people are just kind of walking around trying to figure out like yeah i guess i'll do this with my life that if you Mm -hmm. are one of the lucky few Uh who knows what they want to do then like god you know god bless you because you we do need that and so it was uh yeah it was a bit the film was interesting and the experience was interesting as well 
All right. Um, before I move on, the weird ass thing with Ruth, Ruth Wilson that I was trying to remember was a made-for-TV British movie called Capturing Mary. That's why okay. I don't remember it because it has a dumb name. Yes. Uh, apparently, it's part of a series of movie, like TV movies that take place around the same mansion, and it's another movie like Little Stranger about like the sick allure of aristocracy, yeah. and um, so. Uh, in the present day, Maggie Smith plays the grown-up version of this woman who's played by Ruth Wilson in flashbacks, and it's about and she's walking through this mansion and remembering her time there in like the 1950s and her friendship, sort of courtship with uh, this rich guy who played these sort of perverse psychological games with her. And the movie is really perverse, I think, mm-hmm. to use the word again. Um, uh, uh, like it has this whole telling a story about he's telling a story to her to Ruth Wilson about this dinner where they eat exotic foods and basically say racist shit about Africans and he's just telling the story like sort of lovingly but intentionally to fuck with her hmm. uh, and I think the movie the very few people who saw the movie, I don't remember anyone else saying it was good, but I was um, really drawn into this movie, and that was the first time I ever saw Ruth Wilson, so I'll always associate her with Mary, young Mary from Capturing Mary, which I'll never, I'll, I'll forget that, that name by tomorrow, because it's a very bad title. Uh, <laughs> all right, so moving on. Next up, I watched a movie, uh, I'll have a um, review of the Blu-ray up sometime soon, uh, but I watched... Um, Francis Ford Coppola's 1988 Tucker, The Man in His Dream. Oh, nice. Have you seen this? Not in many years, but well, I was listening to uh, our friend West. He did an episode yeah, about Joe the music. music yeah. yeah. And, uh, and it made me want to watch it again. Um, yeah, it's, I don't think it's, um, I don't think it's anywhere near Coppola's best movie, but it has some of that just like Coppola go for broke ambition to it yeah. that I just love. Yeah. Um, cause it's, uh, it it's I mean it's after one from the heart right one from the heart is 80. that's early eighties yeah that's like early. 80, like eighty two I think oh that long okay uh, so it's well after six years after one from the heart but it has that kind of like uh, it's not as um, fantastical as one from the heart not as 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 uh, fake looking you know yeah um, but it's still. A ton of money went into making everything just perfect and huge and the right color yeah. and like the production design and costumes um, are are so engrossing. I may want um, to borrow the Blu-ray from you because I bet it looks gorgeous. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. And Vittorio, Vittorio Storaro shot it. Oh, yeah. uh, it's it's great. Um, we should do a profile uh, on him. I would like uh, to. Sure. Yeah. Um, uh, Jeff Bridges is a lead. It's a true true story of a guy named Preston Tucker who created a car that was um i guess sort of um flew in the face of a lot of the what the big three were making and then they basically used their uh lobbying and just money and and political influence to get his plant shut down and run him out of business Mm -hmm. and it's a uh it's a sad story um that is both i think um it is very much pro like it, it, it's I'm trying to think how to say this. I think it comes from a conservative point of view in terms of it's pro free enterprise, but to a point, cause it's a, against big business yes. influencing thing things. It's basically saying like, if we let this get too far, then the whole idea of 
free enterprise and the innovation that it is meant to encourage gets stifled because it's a challenge to the establishment. And and it's interesting because you get this, you kind of find yourself wondering like, okay, what if Tucker had succeeded and he got to be one of the big boys, then wouldn't couldn't he just become? Oh, and he absolutely would. Yeah, the, it's, yeah. It's, it's it's a fascinating. I'm not sure if I'd say that's a, a paradox, but it's it's an interesting idea. Uh, yeah, um, and you've got uh, so it's um, yeah, it has that sort of one from the heart sort of affectation and like feeling. That's of, a good word for it. Of yeah, uh, it's a it's a period film that is like period with a capital every letter. Like it's yeah. um, it's a it, period it, with an exclamation point. <laughs> yeah, um, like it's. It's in a way, it's more 1940s than the 1940s. Do you know what I mean? That yes. that sort of uh, indulgence and that um, it definitely focuses on the dream part. It almost feels like um, it feels like Tucker, the who was as much an innovator in cars as he was just really good at bullshitting. Yeah. <laughs> and that's something I think the movie is clearly about. But when it comes to the big speech making at the end, it kind of glosses over. It's not just that he had great ideas for cars. It's yeah. also that he was a great bullshitter. In the yeah. news, and that's, uh, that's as much a part of his near success as, as anything else. Um, but you've got an amazing cast. Uh, so you've got Jeff Bridges, you've got, uh, Martin Landau as his business partner. You've got Joan Allen as his wife. You've got, um, Frederick Forrest as, uh, his sort of chief mechanic. Um, and right. you've got, uh, uh, I, then still young Christian Slater as his oldest son. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was weird seeing, um, just, I mean, it'd be premature, but talk about someone I'd love to do a profile of Christian Slater because, um, I don't think you, uh, unless it's about to come up, I don't think you've seen the wife yet. No, no. I think you should check it out. I think you'd really like it. And Christian Slater is great in it, mm-hmm. uh, is a supporting role. Um, and to see like in Tucker, he's, He's not very good, I have to say. Yeah. Um, he's got a certain level of, and always has, like the camera loves him. He's got a lot of on-screen charisma. Mm-hmm. Um, but the scenes, there's a lot of group scenes of them working on the car together. And looking at Christian Slater just trying to keep up with Jeff Bridges and Frederick Forrest and, yeah. uh, and, and the other actors, it's like, okay, he's got a ways to go. But then watching The Wife, it's like, well, he got there. He's no. he's really good. He's good on Mr. Robot, or he was in the first season, which was the only one I watched. Well, and Tucker uh, wasn't that far removed from Heather's, but right? But Heather's, like, I think, was him. Like, he had, that's that's that was the groove for him, right. you know? I'm not sure how much of a... Uh, of, of a stretch like cause JD's supposed to be all swagger. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's true. All, um, uh, this is a great, a great saying. I only recently learned that I'm going to use that. I'm very excited to get a chance to use, uh, JD from Heather's is like a pizza cutter, all edge and no point. Um, <laughs> that's pretty good, right? <laughs> I just heard that Where the other day for the first that? time. I don't know. That's on funny. the internet, like internet somewhere. Uh, I feel like such an old, um, but yeah, I saw it on the internet and I decided I'm going to start using that. That's pretty good. Uh, anyway, so yeah, Tucker, um, definitely worth checking out on the Blu-ray because it's, it is gorgeous. And then finally for me, I saw the new, uh, wash Westmoreland film. The first film that he's made since, uh, his both filmmaking and life partner, uh, Richard, right. Richard, Glatzer? What was it? Was it Glatzer? I don't know. Uh, he passed away. They made still Alice together, which is amazing. Um, uh, and now he's made a new movie called Colette starring, which is a biopic of Colette, who was a, uh, a French novelist. Um, and it stars Kira Knightley as Colette and it stars Dominic West as, 
um, her husband and the guy who she was essentially the, the novels that made her famous eventually were all pu- published under his name. She was writing them oh, okay. published under his name. It wasn't until after their divorce that she sued and they were sort of retroactively, retroactively credited mm-hmm. to Colette. Um, and so the movie's kind of about that story of her going from, uh, like a 19 year old farm girl who falls in love with her father's old war buddy played by Dominic West, mm-hmm. um, then moves to Paris, marries him is sort of swept up in his like literary work. Cause he, re- he's a writer and, uh, and a literary critic, um, and a theater critic and, uh, like Tucker, a big, great bullshitter. Mm-hmm. Um, and sort of falling in love with that. And then over the course of the movie coming to realize who she is and where her talents lie and then where her desires lie. And the movie also becomes, um, very much about her sexual growth. And it's, uh, that, um, I think the movie wisely never says like, Oh, she was actually a lesbian. Like, no, I think that this is a, she was just, the movie seems to be saying that she was just someone who was willing to explore all elements sure. of her sexuality and had lots of different types of relationships, with lots of different people, um, to some extent with her husband's, uh, blessing, but to some extent he had, a, or at least attempted to put a leash on her. Anyway, I'm not here to tell you the story of the movie. Watch the movie. It's really good. Um, I think it's mostly uh, like with Still Alice, because Still Alice was, I think, a, a, gorge- a gorgeously made movie with a lot of restraint mm-hmm. um, that gave its uh, actors a, a lot of trust and a lot of room. Mm-hmm. And I would say that's what this is, too. There's obviously a bit more, because it's a period movie, there's a, there's a bit more um, layers of, uh, of of style and aesthetics. Um, or, or sorry, what, what was that? Uh uh, the other day, I was trying to remember all the winners of Best Actress, uh-huh. and, you and 2014 was getting me. <laughs> and I just now realized, oh, that's who. It was. That's yeah. right. Um, but Sorry. but still, I think the movie. Yeah, it's very beautiful to look at. It's very immersive. Um, the costumes are absolutely gorgeous. Uh, but really, just in a, in a lot of ways, just like Still Alice, it's really an actor's showcase. And and Keira Knightley has. Uh, I feel like this is a broad, this is a big statement, but I feel like she has probably never been better than she is uh, in, in this movie. Um, there's also some dance sequences where Wash Westmoreland does get to sort of um, let go of his restraint and, and um, do some more, a little, some more arch photography. Um, but that's not a complaint. Uh, I feel like oftentimes when people say something's arch, they're saying uh, that it's, uh, extra is too much. Sure. Um, that's not what I mean. Uh, there's, there's, uh, at least one dance sequence in which she looks directly into the camera, which is kind of, again, kind of an arch move, but I really liked it. I felt like it was earned at that point. Um, uh, and, uh, yeah, really my big takeaway is that, um, Kira Knightley has probably, ne- uh, probably never been better. And I might say the same of Dominic West, but I've never, I've always liked Dominic West's presence in yeah. movies and TV shows, but I've never considered him one of our great actors. But no. I think this might be his best performance too. Hmm. Yeah. Definitely worth, uh, worth the time. Okay. And I'm done. All right. So I have another movie and then a TV show kind of. Uh, so I saw Spike Lee's Black Klansman. All right, <clears throat> which I thought was very good. Can I say real quick? Yes. You know. You know what? No. Uh, never mind. Oh, okay, I'll say it. Okay. I please. was going to maybe save it for the main show, but it was oh. we already had someone for the top of the show. Right. Um, my of my top 
six movies of 2018 so far. Five of them were released in August. This month was incredible. Hmm. Incredible. I can write them down for you if you want the five. Well, I know the Meg's in there. <laughs> I haven't seen the Meg, okay. actually. Uh, it's um, not necess- might be in order, not necessarily in order. Madeline's Madeline, Support the Girls, We the Animals, Black Klansmen, Minding the Gap. Five yeah. of my top six movies came out in August. Hmm. Incredible month. And The Wife came out in August, too. That's a great movie, too. It's not quite in that, uh, in that sphere, but yeah. Yeah, I wonder if August isn't the dumping ground it used to be. But I feel like none of what I just mentioned is... None of it was that mainstream. Was the, yeah, studios Black still Klansman dump was probably it. the closest to mainstream of anything. Yeah, yeah, so studios still use it maybe to dump stuff. Yeah. Um, but the big studios, but it seems like a great place for indie. Hmm. All right, sorry. So Black Klansman. Okay. Uh, very good movie. I really liked it. Occasionally loved it. Um, this isn't my big takeaway, but it's one of my big takeaways. Look, if you want to cast Michael Bean, just cast him. All right? Because that Felix guy, I mean, it's, it's <laughs> astonishing. It's, he looks like, hey, you remember yeah. Michael Bean in The Abyss? Imagine he right. was super racist. Yeah. Uh, but Michael and, Bean's older than that now. So you, I know. So they found this guy who's like Icelandic or something yeah, like, he's like that. Finnish, right? Finnish, yeah. Finnish. That's it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and he does a great job. But like, I found myself getting genuinely, I, nothing as the actor, he did a great job, but like getting genuinely distracted by how much he looked like <laughs> Michael Bean. But anyway, uh, that's, yeah. that's not a fault of the film. It's just something of, uh, an issue of mine. Speaking um, of the cast though, do you okay. like the, um, there's the one really racist cop played by Frederick Weller. Yeah. Do you remember been, when Frederick Weller was like about to be a thing? Like when we were in college, I remember him in, the shape of things. The shape of things. He was also in the business of strangers. The business of, yeah. And I think like there was another one around that time where I was like, Frederick Weller's the next big thing. Um, and I don't mean to well, make fun. He's obviously still great, but yeah, it's just like, uh, I, I thought he would be the next big thing in supporting acting. Uh, okay. cause he wasn't really the lead type. Um, and yeah, when he showed up, I did have, I was like, is that Fred Weller? No. Yeah. He looks great. Oh, yeah. I remember the other one that I remember. Okay. But no one saw this movie. It was called When Will I Be Loved. Oh, yeah. Um, with uh, Mark Nev Rock? Campbell. No. Nev Campbell. Dominic Chianese. Yes. Okay. Chianese might be a hard. Who's hard the guy scene. in that? Like, well, it's Frederick Weller. It's Fred. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, I really like that movie, but I also feel weird saying that I like James Toback movies now. <laughs> like, uh, uh, there's a lot of artists he like makes- that. He makes... Well, let's just go ahead and say all around, he makes odd decisions. Uh, <laughs> yeah. He makes very compelling decisions, yeah. uh, whether you want him to or not. Um, yeah, so uh, it is, I think I forgot, and I shouldn't have, of course. I think I forgot how virtuosic uh, Spike Lee can be as a director. Um just the way he uses his camera and just like his choice of shots. And I think it's a wonderfully edited film. Like there are so many sequences where we're seeing two things like put together to kind of compare the two and maybe, and contrast them. And and I think that's, it's just, it's a very well told story. Um, I think the acting is, is great. Um, I also forget just ha- just the type of presence that Adam Driver can be like just so natural mm-hmm. on screen, just effortless. And I think he, so he I think think he does a great job. Um, and let's see, I want to I want to look up some of these other actors because it's I think everybody does such a really such a great job. Um, 
Um, yeah, I do. I do think that uh, John David Washington mm-hmm. was, you know, was able to. I would say carry the movie. It's not all on him. It's a lot of people, but uh, but he it, definitely is the focus. It becomes. I mean, for long stretches, it's a buddy cop movie with the two of them. Very but much yeah, it's, so. It's, which it's I was definitely gonna, more his movie, but yeah. there are times when it feels like it's a two hander. Very much so. Um, to the point where part of me is just like, it could also it could be called. Black Klansman, also known as Jewish Klansman. <laughs> right, um, yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, let's see. What's his name? Um, Robert John Burke. I enjoyed him. Robocop. He was the third. He, he was, was Robocop. Third Robocop, Robocop, Robocop yeah. And yes. so I'm sure that's why he was cast. He also got um, Isaiah Whitlock Jr. Uh, Ryan Eggold, who plays uh, Walter. He's the nice Klansman. Oh, right. Yeah. And... So here's where yeah, okay Tyler did air quotes just now around nice yeah yeah sorry. <laughs> I know that was obvious he's the one that doesn't put a gun in anybody's face so I guess yeah. that's a that's a win um, so here's the thing I do think the script which has four writers mm. and occasionally I feel like I could I could feel it um, the script I feel like is not as the movie's already pretty long so I understand why you don't want to develop certain things but you know. Walter's character, I mean, he throws something out there very early on, which is that like his was his wife or sister. I don't recall, but like a a prominent female in his life was raped and murdered by a group of black men. And he puts it out there as kind of and you kind of get the impression like, okay, I think I think we've pinpointed why he's a racist. And not that I. And it it makes him a bit sympathetic. And I actually would have liked to explore that, not to humanize him, but to further understand how someone can arrive here. Hmm. Like, I hate to put it, but like uh, Paul Walter Hauser's character, like you feel like there's something genuinely mentally wrong with him. Yeah. Um, And so a lot of the other people you can, you know, David Duke, it's like, this is a way to get power. Yes. He undeniably undeniably like feels mm-hmm. superior, but you kind of feel like he recognizes that if I play into this, I can do well. Um, whereas this seems to have a very personal connection and I would have liked a, a scene between him and like Adam driver where he like goes into a little bit of detail again, not to make the character more human, but yeah. so that we can understand where this kind of thing can come from. Uh, yeah, but I don't know if that's one of the many things it can come from. I, I think Spike Lee seems more interested in the forms it can take than sure. where it comes from. Sure. I don't know if that's the movie he's he's making. And I, but I do Plus think the things that, it's already two hours and fifty minutes. I, that's 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 the big thing. And I do think that the ending actually kind of sputters out a little bit. Like oh. when he brings in, I think he from a screenwriting standpoint. Okay, when he brings in like the real life stuff from modern day it's effective, but I think it like the scene where um, the scene where they, Oh, okay. Yeah. Here we go. Uh, where they actually finally like expose like the bad cop. Uh huh. Yeah. Um, the, uh, that felt almost like a, uh, a, a reshoot. Yeah, that scene like, could go. It, it can go. I mean, yeah, I, it, I, I hate to say it, but I mean, people cheered in my theater and I just felt like, yeah, that feels like a studio note. Yeah. Do, and I wonder it? if 
I wonder how what percentage of Boots Riley being upset with the movie was that scene. Yeah, because it does feel weird. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't feel like it belongs. It's and and that like every that that scene in the story comes right before this big meeting that they have with their captain. Yeah, who then yeah. is a little bit not not uh standoffish against them but it just structurally it feels so strange to have that scene in there it almost feels like they needed yeah. kind of an arbitrary victory yeah um, and it seems weird also to have laurie laura harrier's character in that scene given what she says both before and after that scene about the police force yeah like i yeah I don't, I'm, I'm with you i don't believe she would be in his life anymore yeah there's a reason that it's uh, the movie is at number four for me, not at number one. Yeah, <laughs> and that scene might have something to do with it. It's very effective in, in a lot of ways. Don't get me wrong, um, but yeah, I, I think its weaknesses are at the script level. I'd say, it, and at the structural level, um, and but it is it is very effective. Uh, I'll tell you what movie it reminded me a lot of, and I've already made my decision that if I do a more than one lesson about Black Klansman, <clears throat> David Mamet's Homicide oh, yeah. is going to be the companion film. Like it's what a good movie. this idea of who you are, like how you are born. To me, that's the that's that's the the debate with him being a cop is that who you are and who you choose to be, and that what if they're actually a war with each other, and what if that war is only maybe it's inside yourself and maybe it's external. Who's to say, I thought that was probably one of the more compelling elements of the film. Um, but yeah, by and large, I was very happy. I saw it. It's very amusing. I will say, um, I didn't really like the, uh, I didn't really like the character and performance of David Duke. And I also, that's the part that maybe it's just because Topher Grace just reads so young for me always that like when he's got the wig and he's got the mustache, it just feels like a kid playing dress up. That's which maybe I I, I think in my review, if not in my review, then definitely when I was on the aforementioned out now podcast, I said that as a, as a positive, I think that's intentional and I think it's a funny choice. And I guess it's, I don't know, it's, but then when you see the actual David Duke, much older, but when you see him talk, you're always like, he is pretty wormy. Because <laughs> um, I think I had gotten him mixed up with George Wallace, you know, oh, the right. black comedian. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, I think I had gotten him mixed up and George Wallace was this very forceful speaker and all that. And then you see David Duke, you're like, oh yeah, no, this guy's a just a toad. Oh, they use the, t- the term toad. Never mind. Uh, I'll just stick with worm. Um, yeah. But uh, so, yeah, I was very happy I saw it. Lastly, I've oh, been right. watching TV kind of. As you know, I spend a lot of time on YouTube and I've been watching old episodes of Siskel and Ebert. Okay. Man. It's it is to me invigorating to watch these two guys, both of them incredibly smart, incredibly articulate. They're old friends. Well, sorry, they're they're they have a contentious relationship, but after yeah. a while, they've been doing it for so long that they just have a nice shorthand. Um, and there is really nothing to me like people liked watching them argue. To me, there's nothing better than when they both decide when they both agree on a movie, whether it's terrible uh-huh. or especially when it's wonderful. Like I, when you watch their their review of Fargo or Goodfellas or Pulp Fiction or any of the, or like any of these big movies from like the eighties or Mm nineties. Um, and they are just completely over the moon and they just cannot. And like there's, you can see them restraining 
from like yelling at the screen and at the camera and saying, go and see this. Like there are other movies out there. Who gives a shit? This is what you need to see. And it's that, that level of enthusiasm is very, uh, is still very exciting to me. And it just makes me, uh, just makes me all the sadder that, uh, that they're gone. So check them, check them out on YouTube.